And now we're going to be continuing our series on where would Jesus be? And Nigel's going to come and do the next instalment. Where do you think Jesus is today? Any ideas? Let's find out. Lord, we thank you for Nigel. We pray your blessing upon him. And as he shares with us, will you open our hearts to receive all that you have to say to us through what he shares. In Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. Thank you very much, Jenny. And thank you to Jenny and Luke and the band. I feel really blessed and ministered to this morning. To you. Is it just me? Just that whole, uh, it was well, so well planned and crafted and played, uh, going through the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus and some of its implications uh, and its parts. It's impossible to grasp it all, but it was a wonderful taste today of some of the aspects of what Jesus went through in Holy Week. And I feel really blessed and ministered to in my spirit, so that's absolutely wonderful. Today's called the cross and the cup, uh, and there are two aspects to the talk and two items that we're going to look at. And as Jenny said, this week is known as Holy Week. Are you working that, Josh, or is Scott's gone to teach the youth? So hopefully this will work. And two things we're looking at is on the Friday, Jesus would be on the cross dying, dying to forgive us, and on Thursday night... He'd be in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, and that's where the the cup goes on. He'd be in the garden praying. Next slide. But Friday is a time of uh, torture and suffering and death for Jesus. So why is it called Good Friday? Any thoughts? Why is it called Good Friday? Doesn't seem that good to me, does it? Any any offers of why is Good Friday good? he set us free there's something to celebrate at the end of it well some people think it should be bad friday uh, and some people use the day to try and enter in to feeling and appreciating some of jesus suffering and actually if you're anyone german here where's tina gone you can correct me if i get this wrong but apparently in germany it's called Karfreitag, which means sorrowful friday so the Germans try and get into the sorrow of the day, and that's one thing that people do. Some people think um, it should be God Friday, not Good Friday, uh, but uh, other etymologists think that you can't really justify that when they've done research on that theory. Another theory is that the good had the, the meaning years ago of holy, and that makes kind of sense. So it's Good Friday in the sense that it's Holy Friday, it's especially Holy Day in the Christian calendar and that makes a lot of sense but I'd like to come back to what Dee shared that it's good in that there's good news to share there's good news because as a result of Jesus suffering and dying for us we're rescued we're saved we're redeemed he's broken the power of sin and death and he's given us the opportunity to come and get hold of the gift of eternal life and that's absolutely wonderful anyone happy about that Wonderful. Now, I had the privilege last week of uh, doing children's church, uh, which is great. So if you've never done that before, you'd be welcome to train for that and help out. It's really brilliant. And we did a memory verse. That's one of the things you do. So I thought we'd do the same verse. It's a kind of free translation of Hebrews 12.2. 
So we're going we're gonna to learn this memory verse together, which means reciting it in unison, including the reference on the count of three. One, two, three. Hebrews 12, 2. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is our champion. He died on the cross to save us because he loves us so much. That's good news, isn't it? So let's do the next slide. Okay. Hebrew. That's it. Thank you. Josh, what are you doing? That, stop. Stop there. Okay, one, two, three. Hebrews 12, 2. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is our champion. He died on the cross to save us because he loves us so much. You ready for the challenge? Let's say it confidently. Hebrews 12, 2. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is our champion. He died on the cross to save us because he loves us so much. I think just as we've been enriched in the worship with words of scripture and descriptions of what Jesus has done on the cross and his love for us, just reciting the word of God and getting it into you is probably a lost art and a lost discipline, but it really feeds us. And the kids were great. They're even sharper than you. Last week, they were looking through the the back of a sheet backwards and still getting it and remembering everything, which is wonderful. But at the cross, we see a wonderful demonstration of God's love for us in the sacrifice of Jesus. And I want us to go away this morning thinking, I'm loved by God. And I'm loved that much that God's son, Jesus, would give his life for me on that cross. That's how much I'm loved. And just to know that and let that get into your body, soul, mind and spirit is a wonderful thing. I want to reflect for a few minutes on the cross and why Jesus had to die. And then we'll finish up with the cup. I have a a pastor friend called Simon and uh, when he was young in the ministry, he was given the chance to do some student work and ministry. So he had this group of students he was going to speak to and he thought he'd do something on the cross and so uh, he picked what he thought was the coolest Christian rock song about the cross at that time uh, it was a while ago and uh, he thought uh, he'll play that song and uh, the students will get into it and then he'd jump up and say why did Jesus die it wasn't a mistake it wasn't an accident he died because he loves us so much And then he'd flow into his talk. So he practiced that, and on the day he played the song, and uh, this cool music came through. And then as soon as the song finished, he jumped up, and he said, Why did Jesus die? It wasn't a mistake. It was an accident. And he realized he got a bit scrambled in his head, and his wonderful plans for this talk fell apart. But it's neither a mistake nor an accident. But why did Jesus die? And the death of Jesus is a very powerful message. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians, For Christ sent me to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. So there's wonderful power in the message of the cross. He goes on to write this, Jews demand signs, they want miracles, 
Greeks look for wisdom. They want the latest philosophy and intellectual thought. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so the message of the cross is foolishness to the world, but it's the wonderful power of God to anyone that's got an open heart to him. And we can appreciate it here this morning. And if you know people that have got some spiritual openness, then there's power in that message of the cross. So let's work out how to find a way of talking about it this week at work or at home, wherever we are. Find a way of saying something about the message of the cross this week. How it works, how we get reconnected with God at its deepest level is a mystery, a very profound mystery. But there are pictures and images of the Bible that help us to, to grasp the atonement, the atonement, how God and man come back together, having been separated by sin. How do we reconnect with God? And people call them models of the atonement. Uh, they shouldn't be seen as competing theories, but rather different word pictures and scenarios and analogies that help us to grasp what's happened at the cross. I just want to look at a few of them. If you put the next slide up, please, Josh. So why did Jesus have to die? There's a battle going on, and life in our world is a bit like a battlefield. Anyone identify with that feel in your workplace or in this world when you look at the news or stuff going on in your own life? It's a bit of a battlefield out there. We live in enemy-occupied territory. Satan has great influence in the world, and we're trapped by the enemy. But the good news is that Jesus has come, and he's the commander of the liberating army, and he's won the victory, and he rides in to establish his victory in a battle-torn world and set us free. And that's wonderful news. That's why Jesus had to die, is to set us free in a world that has been dominated in many ways by evil and injustice. Colossians 2 says this, God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. It's a fantastic victory that God has won in Jesus. And then at the end of the Bible, Revelation 19, 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and, rage, and wages a righteous war. And that's a picture of Jesus. I was talking to Tina yesterday, here for good, on the outreach, and uh, reflecting on life being a bit of a battlefield, and uh, Tina's one of those people with jobs that are really difficult. She's an intensive care nurse in hospital, so people close to death, and she's trying to help them get through and get healed. And we were actually very, very glad that Tina was around uh, on the ward in the background checking on the nurses that were caring for Jenny when she nearly died last June. But she works there. It's a bit of a battlefield, and you go through life, and there's a bit of chaos, and there's a battle going on. Uh, and she was wanting Jesus to just come riding in and wind the whole thing up now. Anyone else up for that? Do you want a bit longer as things are, or do you want Jesus, like Tina, to come riding? She's shaking her head. She wants him to come riding in now as our great champion and bring this whole thing 
to a close and usher in the age to come. And then she went on to say, of course, when she gets to, to heaven, she's going to go up to Jesus and ask to borrow his horse. So, thank, yeah, thank you for riding in. Thank you for winding things up. Thank you for your victory. Uh, can I borrow your horse? And then she's going to ride off on this endless beach on Jesus' horse. So you, you can't get there. She's going to get there first. So if that was in your mind, you've had it. Um, this last week I was at a student conference and some of their battlegrounds, um, what it's like in student life uh, became apparent. There's the pressure of studies, obviously, dissertations, exams, people struggling to find a healthy identity, trying to find their way in life, people that are lonely, lack of money as well. And on top of that, broken relationships that they've experienced and very sadly, divorcing parents, they've got to try and adjust to that going on. Those are some of the battlegrounds of student life that I became aware of this week. But in the battleground of life, one of the aspects of the cross is Jesus has won a great victory. He's the commander of heaven's armies, and he's going to come riding in and change things. And we can meet Jesus in that way as we reflect on the cross and the term Christus Victor has been coined to get hold of something of the great victory that Jesus has won. Another aspect is relationship alienation. And I mentioned it, uh, the students finding their relationships breaking at times and friendships going sour. And their parents, uh, many of them have experienced their parents getting divorced. And that's very hard for them. And relationship alienation is a huge problem in the world and the roots and the result of sin is a deep alienation from God. We get alienated from God through sin. You know the story of Adam and Eve. And then that's reflected and worked out in alienation between people in our world as well. There are many broken relationships. But Jesus came to repair those relationships and put us back in connection with Father God. And most of you know that wonderful story Jesus painted in Luke 15 of the father who's looking out for the son who's gone away and that he's so delighted when he comes home and the father races out and embraces him and then throws a huge party and coming home is a wonderful theme in the gospel. Uh, I read uh, that Ernest, Ernest Hemingway a number of years ago wrote a short story uh, which he set in Spain in which a father and son fell out with one another. The boy ran away to Madrid so the father disowned him in disgust and said he didn't want anything more to do with him. Years later, the father realized he'd been too harsh and how much he missed his son. He wanted to put things right and see the boy again. So he put an advert in Madrid newspaper, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. But Paco is a common name in Spain. And when the father turned up at the hotel room on Tuesday, hoping his son would be there, he had to force his way through the crowd of young men waiting outside the hotel, all named Paco and all longing to be reconciled with their fathers. It's a deep brokenness and a deep need to know Father God and to come home. And that's absolutely wonderful. And Jesus died on the cross to repair broken relationships by starting with repairing our broken relationship with God and making us right with him. We're all guilty of sin, and people are familiar with the courtroom scene. And in the battleground, in the battleground theme, we're kind of painted as the innocent victims. But maybe if we're honest, we're 
not just prisoners of war. We've been collaborators. We've gone along with the enemy. We've colluded with him. And we need to be forgiven. And you probably all heard illustrations. If you've done the Alpha course, you will have done of a courtroom scene. We're all guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The sentence is passed. That's the right thing to do. The offence cannot just be ignored. But then the judge takes off his wig, comes down and pays the penalty himself. You've heard that story. And that's another aspect of the cross. Anyone here perfect yet? Elaine, fantastic. Corinne, can you confirm that? Elaine is absolutely perfect. There was a slight grimace on Corinne's face at that point. We're not. We're guilty. Interestingly enough, in the Times yesterday, a judge actually tried to do that, a similar thing. Um, actually read it yesterday. I've heard that story many, many times, that kind of illustration. A judge offered to pay a teenager's fine after refusing to jail her. At 15, she stabbed and wounded the man who had sexually abused her when she was eight. Judge Hall, QC, said he would not jail her for GBH and was willing to pay her fine. But he was found guilty of misconduct for not being impartial enough. So there's actually been a judge doing that whole exchange thing, but uh, that's, that's what the legal profession decided to hit him with. Um, I think he had the lowest level of censure, but you can't do that. But God's done that. He's judge and jury, but he pays the fine. And then finally, we're a slave to Satan and sin. And this is a picture of the world as a slave market. Are you a master of your own destiny? In your own strength, can you live the way you want to? There's obvious addictions in life, aren't they? And uh, our Steve is on a plane to Asia this morning to help the ministry that's getting people off of heroin and introducing them to Jesus and helping them get their lives sorted out. There's an obvious addiction there. But Paul says this, the trouble is with me. I'm a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But in Jesus, God wants to break every chain and set us free. He says himself, Jesus says in Mark 10:45, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom in the Greek is lutron, which means to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. In prison spiritually or in spiritual slavery, Jesus comes to pay the price in full and set us free. If the sun sets you free, and on the cross he said it is finished, which also means the price has been paid in full. Now you're free. So Jesus wins the battle for us. Jesus brings restored relationships to us. Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. Jesus pays the price to set us free. And there's loads more as well. There's so much to celebrate of the good news in Jesus Christ. There's another memory verse. We won't kind of go through it a line at a time, but we'll just read it out together. 1 Corinthians 5, 19. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them.
And when some people tell the story, you get this idea that God the Father dispassionately punishes his son. But the reality is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is fully involved and deeply and intimately engaged in rescuing us and setting us free. But it's interesting he does it in a very upside-down way. I don't know if you notice that through the stories. In the battle, God wins the greatest victory while he appears to be defeated when he's dying on the cross. He's weak there, but he's won the greatest victory. God reconciles our relationship with Father God while Jesus experiences that alienation on the cross himself and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God declares the just penalty, the wages of sin in death, then pays that penalty himself through death on the cross. And God gives us freedom from slavery as Jesus gives his life as a ransom for many. And God is in Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to make us free and bring us salvation in an upside-down way, in a way that's different from the ways in this world, the way that's subversive and a way that brings the kingdom in. And a central idea is one of substitution. We can't bear the penalty ourselves that we deserve. We need someone to take it for us. And Jesus is that substitute. And we get glimpses of that in a number of things. Again, if you've done the Alpha course, you probably heard the story of Maximilian Kolbe. And uh, it goes back to the last day of July in 1941 in Auschwitz. Uh, the sirens announced that a prisoner had escaped. As a reprisal, the guards decided that 10 fellow prisoners would die and they chose them at random. And as they pulled out one of the guys, a guy called Francis, he cried out in despair, my poor wife and children. At that moment, an unimpressive figure of a man with sunken eyes and round glasses stepped out of line. He said, I'm a Catholic priest. I want to die for that man. I'm old. He has a wife and children. I have none. And that man was called Father Maximilian Kolbe. The commandant accepted and he went with the other men they'd chosen to die. And then there was a celebration in 1982 in St. Peter's Square, Rome. And in the crowd was that man, Francis, from Poland, with his wife, with his children, and with his grandchildren. They'd been saved by the sacrifice of that one man. And that pictures what Jesus has done for us. Another story I came across of uh, a boy, an eight-year-old boy. His sister had leukemia and uh, she was going to die and they needed to have blood that matched. And uh, they did the test and his blood was a perfect match. So they said to the, the boy, would you mind if you gave a pint of your blood and we could use it to help save your sister? And he said, just let me think about it overnight. So I thought, he's very thoughtful little boy, we'll let you do that. And he came back the next day and said, yes, I'll do it. And so they, they take the blood out of him and he's there and they're getting the blood ready for his sister. And the doctor comes across as the blood's draining out and uh, says, are you doing okay? And the little boy said, yeah, I feel all right, but when do I start to die? He thought in his head that giving his blood, he would die to save his little sister. There's wonderful pictures of the amazing sacrifice that Jesus has for, for us. Can you show the video, Josh? Before we wind up with the cup, I just wanted us to 
grasp something of the crucifixion. I don't know if someone could turn the lights off. It's just the trailer of the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And I think you should see it at least once. It's an 18. It's pretty horrific. But it's not as bad as what really happened on the day of Jesus' death. But just to appreciate that buying our freedom was at great cost. Just show this trailer. Thank you, Josh. Just a little taste, and if you do see the film, you see the suffering and the sacrifice of Christ that buys us freedom and right relationship and brings health and goodness into our lives. Just to finish off, my thought was of not just the Friday, but Thursday night, and you know that Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane. He was praying. I just want to go through that story and just help us to appreciate that of the anticipation of this Thursday leading up to Friday. It says this in Mark 14 from verse 32. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, sit here while I go to pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. He became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. That was the night before his death on the cross and he needed to pray. There's a lesson there for us if we're under pressure, if we're facing really difficult situations or making a huge sacrifice, the need to pray. And he wanted his closest friends with him. That's what Jesus wanted and needed and that shows the value of friendship. But it says he was deeply troubled and distressed. Apparently the word distressed there has the idea of astonished in it. And it's not that he was surprised by what was going to happen the next day. He predicted his own death. If you read Mark's Gospel in Mark 8, and then again in Mark 9, and then again in Mark 10, he predicts his death and gives more and more details in each time. But I believe as he's there, he's close to the fire, and he's beginning to taste in his being what he's actually going to go through the next day. This week I was down at a retreat centre and... uh, staying with some of the monks there and one of them decided to build a bonfire and me and another guy helped him and it really lit up very well I wanted to kind of take a picture of it etc and as I got closer you could really feel the heat and I thought if I get too much closer my phone will kind of melt and I, I believe that Jesus was tasting the heat of what he would suffer the next day and that's why he was distressed the word troubled means overcome with horror He's really tasting what he's about to experience. He then goes on to say, He went on a little farther and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. And he prayed, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. I think this is the only time in the Bible that Jesus prostrates himself to the ground the only time in this time of personal agony as a man it's interesting also he uses his model of a prayer a lot of people have seen a similarity in this prayer to the start of the lord's prayer the lord's prayer says our father jesus prayed abba father the lord's prayer says holy or hallowed are your name jesus says all things are possible for you here it's saying you're great father god And then the Lord's Prayer says, your will be done. And Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. So he's using the model of prayer he's given us to pray 
at this critical time in his own life. But he doesn't say, your kingdom come. He's honest in his humanity about the pain he's going to suffer. And when he first prays, he says, please take this cup away from me. And we need to be real in our prayers. Sometimes the church is less honest than the Bible is. We need to be real about the pain and suffering, and Jesus was. But he cried out to Father. Then it goes on. Then he returned to the founder of the disciples asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Can you identify with the disciples going to sleep and not standing with their friends? That's maybe horrendous in a way. Jesus wanted and needed their friendship, but they failed. And we fail him as well. But I think maybe there was a deep spiritual oppression, so it wasn't just a natural tiredness. I think they couldn't handle the weight of the deep spiritual oppression of the enemy that was upon Jesus then. And Jesus left them again and prayed the same prayer as before. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping. They couldn't keep their eyes open. They didn't know what to say. When he returned the third time, he said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Their wonderful Lord didn't sleep. He was strong in prayer. And he was willing to drink that cup. And the cup is often used in the Bible as a metaphor for the wrath of God on human evil. Divine justice poured out on injustice. Ezekiel 23 says, You'll drink a cup large and deep, the cup of ruin and desolation. And Jesus was willing, in the end, to drink that cup, drink the cup of the world's poison and God's judgment on it. He took it into himself, and he was willing to take that on, knowing what he would suffer the next day. Staying at this monastery, um, they have interesting customs, and their meals are all taken in silence. So sometimes it's completely silent. You're never allowed to talk in the meals. Other times there's some music playing or someone reading from a book. Uh, and I was desperate in the morning for a cup of coffee, but you can't talk to anyone. You have to be silent. And I was looking for a cup. And I couldn't see any cups anywhere. Uh, and then after about 10 minutes, I sussed out. It's not every meal, but in the mornings in this monastery, just they don't have cups for coffee. They have bowls. They don't use a cup. And just made me think when I was reflecting on this story that drinking out of a bowl, you really realize how much you're taking on. And it wasn't just a, a sip of the world's poison and sin. It wasn't just a sip of God's judgment and anger on it. But Jesus was willing to drink the whole cup of all the sin and poison and rubbish in the world and God's judging of it and deal with it completely. In another place, Jesus talks about it like a baptism, and that means to be totally immersed and submerged in something. But he did it. He exhausted the poison, the sin, the pain in the world, and he gives us the antidote. And that's, again, a wonderful picture of the good news in Jesus Christ. He completes his mission. He fulfills his calling he pays the price. He's not put off by the cost. And he does it. And he does it because he loves us so much. If you flick on, please, Josh, another couple of slides. That's a picture of him in the garden. Then the final slide, this is where we're landing. Our cup. 
You've had communion, but you may have noticed there are other cups at the front here. And I'd like you, if you're willing to, to come forward and take a cup. It's not a whole bowl full. I couldn't get enough bowls and enough wine here today. But I'd like to take the cup, and there's two things I'd like to say, and I'd like to encourage you to say. One is, as you drink it, thank you, Jesus, that you drank that cup. You exhausted the poison and sin in the world, and you took the cup of God's righteous judgment against it, and you exhausted that because you love me so much. So it's taking the cup as a thank you. And the second aspect is Jesus fulfilled his mission. He did it. And it's just that thought of what have you called me to, God? What have you called me to? I'm willing to fulfill my mission in life. I'm willing to play my part in the kingdom. And obviously the monks in the monastery have committed themselves for, for life there. I felt God called me to be a pastor in the church, and that's what I'm trying to do. People find fulfillment in their work of vocations. I remember John having a really strong calling in his teaching. It was very important to him, not just a job on the side, but a spiritual ministry and a calling in life. You may drink the cup and say, Lord, help me to fulfill my part in your kingdom through the job you've given me. Or it may be your gifts. Help me to fulfill my part in your kingdom by the generosity that I can exercise, by my ability to lead singing and worship, by my commitment to prayer and intercession, by my willingness to prophesy, by my willingness to share my faith in evangelism. There's ways that he's gifted each one of us. And by drinking the cup, saying, yes, Lord, I'm willing to play my part. I'm willing to prophesy. I'm willing to pray. I'm willing to be generous. I'm willing to serve people. I'm willing to care for people. Whatever you called me to, I'm willing to do. Because you took the cup and you drank it fully and you did what your Father had called you to do. So I'd like to land there and I think if the band could lead us in one final song. And it'd be great if you could do that. Just come forward and say, thank you, Jesus, that you drank the cup. And come forward and say, yes, Lord, I'm willing to drink this as a symbol that I'm going to play my part in your kingdom. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. So let's stand together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for what you accomplished on the cross. We thank you that you fulfilled your mission in the world. We thank you that you did it because you loved us so much. And Lord, we want to honor you and we want to come forward and take this cup as a sign that we're willing to be the people that you've called us to be. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.